Let's go ahead. Uh, If you want to open up to Daniel chapter 9 in your Bibles, and we're going to be in verse 20 of Daniel chapter 9. And I'm going to be reading to the end of the chapter, and then we will get into it. So, Daniel 9, verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord God for the holy hill of my God, While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me to understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you. You are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, and then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one will be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to, the, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. All right, Daniel chapter 9. Uh, just a few verses this time, and you'll understand why we're only doing this many verses in just a moment. Uh, Before we start, uh, I want to read a a quotation from one of the commentaries that I've been uh, helping, that's been helping me along uh, in Daniel. Uh, And this commentator, uh, he writes, he says, what does all this mean? It means that when you're driving home late at night, and you tune into the prophecy hour on your radio, and you hear the preacher refer to, quote, what is perfectly clear in the Daniel 70-week prophecy, you know that he hasn't read the text carefully. So uh, there's a lot going on in the text, and we would be foolish to ignore that or to pretend like it's not going on, and I'm not going to try to flatten out details just for the sake of convenience. Uh, With that being said, though, there's so many different ways people have come up to try to make sense of this text that uh, we just don't have enough time to go through all of them. So I'm going to present to you how I understand the text as best as I do, Uh, And if you have questions about that, or if you uh, are interested in more resources or other ways of approaching the text, uh, if you have a study Bible, like an ESV study Bible, they have, I think, three or four different views listed in there. There's lots of ways to approach the text at my point. I'm just going to give you one schema I think is the best way to make sense of the text. Um, If you want a working title for uh, the the text or a working idea to hold on to, uh, this is the answer of God. Uh, We're talking about the field guide for exiles. Daniel's prayer was last week. We said this is a God who hears prayer, sorry, two weeks ago. And this week, we're talking about the answer of God to that prayer. So verse 20 is very important. Daniel is telling us that it's while he's speaking, praying, and confessing that Gabriel comes to him. And then in verse 22, it says, He made me to understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. This is God's answer to Daniel through Gabriel about what is to come essentially as an answer to Daniel's prayer. I'm just going to put this down real quick. Um, So then the question, uh, just a quick recap, 
what was Daniel's prayer all about? So Daniel is praying. Remember, Daniel's reflecting on the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, uh, verses 10 and 11. Uh, and Jeremiah is telling, uh, in that prophecy, he says 70 weeks are for Israel for the, uh, for the exile. And at the end of 70 weeks, Israel will return back to the land. So Daniel's reading this. And 70 years have elapsed. He's been alive for all 70. He was there when Israel was brought out from uh, Judah into Babylon. He's been alive. He's over 70 years old now, probably like 80, 86, something like that. And he, he's been alive for that whole 70 years. So he's reading Jeremiah. He's like, I've been alive all 70 years. And now there's just been a transition of power. This is, Daniel starts in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. So this is the Medes and the Persians right after Babylon. Daniel's reading Jeremiah's prophecy. And he's saying, the 70 years are up. Babylon is dethroned. Now it's time for Israel to return to the land, for Judah to be restored, for Jerusalem to be a holy city again, for the people of God to be in the land in their former splendor. So he starts praying and confessing and, and looking for an answer, beseeching the Lord, because it's the 70th year, but the people aren't back in the land. The splendor isn't here. So, so what's going on? Is Jeremiah's prophecy not true? And then the answer comes here. And here's the answer that Gabriel gives to him. And this is the 70 weeks prophecy, the very uh, fraught text. So verse 24, Gabriel says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. And this uh, most holy place, some of your translations might say a most holy one. Uh, there's some translation difficulties there. It just says a most holy in the text, and then they kind of fill in what is the subject of the most holy. So most holy place or most holy one. So there's 70 weeks that are going to expand and I'm, I'm, I'm going to not try to draw this all out, but I'm just going to write down some ideas that might be, might be helpful for us to remember. So there's 70 weeks. Okay. There we go. There's 70 weeks that have been declared. Uh, the text literally says there's 70 sevens. So you might have a footnote on the word weeks that says sevens or, uh, or periods of seven. So 70 weeks were decreed about you, your, pe your people, and the holy city. So this is talking about Israel, people of God, uh, and their city, which is Jerusalem, okay? And this 70 weeks, at the end of this time, there's a couple of things that are going to be accomplished. And this is the driving thing that is going to help us understand the text. What is going to happen in this 70-week period? So in the 70 weeks, we're going to first finish transgression. So transgression needs to be dealt with. The other thing that the 70 weeks is going to accomplish is it's going to put an end to sin. Now you might ask, how are these different? We'll get there in a minute. <laughs> to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity. So there's going to be atonement. There's going to bring in an everlasting righteousness. So we might just say, uh, I'm just going to say everlasting righteousness. Righteousness. To seal both vision and prophet. I'm just going to write seal. So the vision and the prophet are going to be sealed. And then to anoint a most holy place. And then there's going to be an anointing. Okay. So all these things have to take place. These, let's say, six things within the 70 weeks. That's what's, that's what's going on. And now you might say, okay, this sounds pretty straightforward. And now we'll see where it gets complex. 
Okay, so first thing is, there's, there's a bunch of questions we could ask. We could ask, when do we start counting? What are the 70 weeks? By the way, uh, remember in Jeremiah's prophecy, uh, Jeremiah's talking about 70 years for the exile. So when Daniel's talking about 70 sevens, it's not 70 weeks, meaning like, uh, I don't know, that would amount to, what, just, just under two and a half, two years, just under two years. So 70 weeks is not literal weeks. It's what some people call 70 weeks of years. So 70 sevens or 490 years. Okay, so it's 70 weeks or 70 sevens, but these are years, not days or weeks. So 70 sevens. So this is approximately 490 years that are going to elapse. Now, uh, everyone agrees on everything I've just written up here. And then people start disagreeing like from this point forward. So 490 and now we have the question, okay, when do we start counting? So uh, Gabriel tells us, verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed a prince, there shall be seven weeks. So when do we start counting with this 70 weeks? Well, first a word is going to go out and this word is going to be to the restoring and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Now there's a couple of dates that we could even look at in our Bibles that could be potential candidates for this. For instance, Cyrus, decrees to the Jewish people that they're permitted to leave Babylon or leave, that's the Medo-Persian Empire now, they're permitted to leave the land and go back to Jerusalem. That is one option. The problem is if you start the 490 years at the Cyrus decree, uh, you end up somewhere at uh, like 480 BC, which nothing happens at 480 BC. <laughs> so that, that's a problem. So that date. There's another date though, that's a, that's a potential decree and I think a better candidate. And this one can be found in Ezra 7. So if you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Ezra, If you're wondering where is Ezra before before Job, before Psalms, Ezra is before those. So it's Ezra chapter seven, and it's verses six and seven there. So Ezra is sent, uh, and I'm going to start reading uh, just in verse one, uh, verse one of chapter seven. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, and there's a bunch of names there. Uh, verse 6, this Ezra went up to Babylon, or Babylonia, because Babylon, the empire has been destroyed, so just a region. He was a scribe, sealed in the law of Moses, that the, skilled of the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted to him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. And there went also up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up to Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra has set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And so Artaxerxes gives Ezra essentially a decree or a command. This is not just a general decree like Cyrus gave to just return to Jerusalem or to return to the land, but the decree from Artaxerxes is essentially safeguarding or building materials for the people to begin to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So Artaxerxes declares to the people essentially to go and build Jerusalem. He gives them materials and, and stuff. So there's, there's two decrees, the one from Cyrus, which just sends them back to the land, this one, which is essentially... Uh, let's say, a license for the people to begin to rebuild. 
And the people do begin to rebuild, and this leads to a lot of problems in Ezra. They face some opposition and, and things like that. But the people are beginning to rebuild the city. So the, I would say, if you're going to say, when do we start the clock, we would start with this decree. So the, the clock starts then with the decree of Artaxerxes, and this would be in the year, uh, see, I wrote it down here. Um, this is in the year 458 B.C. So I, don't, I know that you might not be interested in the history lesson of this and all, but 458 B.C. is when we would start, and that is when... Uh, this is decreed, this decree from Artaxerxes go out, okay? Now, we have 490 years to account for, and if you're doing some quick math in your head, you might see, oh, this puts us roughly within the first century AD when all these things are culminating or bringing about their completion. And so we have to do a little bit more work. So if you look back at the text, verse 26 tells us that after 62 weeks, an anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end will come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So there's going to be a 62-week period. So the first seven-week period was essentially from the decree of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, essentially to the first phase of Jerusalem being rebuilt. Then there's a 62-week period, and this is, if you're doing the math, seven weeks plus 62 weeks, that takes you to 69 of the 70 weeks. So you have almost all of it done. And that period of time spans from this 458 BC. And if you're doing this in terms of years, this takes you to about 483 years, right? Because you have the last week remaining, the last seven. So it takes you to 483. Now, if you go from 458 and count over 483 years, not quite shy of the four full, full 490, this takes you to AD 26, okay? AD 26, and you guys might know this from, from New Testament, this is uh, approximately the date when Jesus is baptized. And then if you go one more week forward, so you have then seven more years for all of the things that are declared in this prophecy to take place. So from AD 26 is when the, uh, when the anointed one comes, and this is when the anointed one will be cut off, and he will have nothing. And then after the anointed one comes and is cut off and has nothing, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So this is all kind of a schema for how these things take place, okay? Now, you might be saying, okay, well, this seems like a convenient selection of this number to get to AD 26. What is the governing principle for these things, okay? For me, the governing principle for how do we put all these things together is these things which have to happen within the 70 weeks, okay? Transgression has to be dealt with. There has to be an end to sin. There has to be atonement. There has to be an everlasting righteousness which is established. The seal of the vision and prophets, they have to be sealed up, and there has to be an anointed one or a most holy who is anointed, a holy place. Now, if you are a New Testament Christian, you know about the gospel, you know about Jesus, his crucifixion, and his resurrection, you would be hard-pressed to go back to Daniel chapter 9, read those texts, and say this does not talk about Jesus, his life, death, and ministry. In fact, if you're reading the Bible, the whole Bible culminates in its narrative arc on Jesus, his crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. That is the thrust of the whole scripture. And the New Testament talks about Jesus dealing with transgression, putting an end to sin, being the atonement for his people, establishing the everlasting righteousness, which cannot be mitigated or destroyed. Now the question, okay, what does it mean to seal up vision and profit? We're going to go here uh, in just a minute. Oh, actually, we'll probably have to spend most of our time next week there. And the last one is the anointing. So the anointing of the most holy place, I would say this is referring to the baptism of Jesus in AD 26. And then uh, we have one more verse, and then we'll uh, kind of put together some of the loose ends here. 
Verse 27, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, okay? So this is the last week that we're dealing with. So he's going to make a strong covenant with many for one week. That's these outstanding days. And halfway through the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, a week, uh, this week is seven years. Now, if you're going from AD 26 over seven years, that takes you to AD 33. And halfway between these two, somewhere around, let's say, AD 30, what happens? He puts an end to sacrifice and to offering. What happens in AD 30? This is the crucifixion of Jesus. This is when the, tail, the veil of the temple is torn in two. Sacrifice is put to an end. Hebrews 10 tells us that the sacrificial system is gone. It's abrogated through the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He puts an end to sacrifice and offering halfway through that last week. And thus, in the full 70 weeks, all these things are done and have taken place. Now, I've left one piece untouched, the seal. And here's what happens with the seal. So, if you want to look again where it says the seal, he goes to seal both vision and prophet. This is the last thing that we haven't, let's say, touched in the text. What does it mean when he says seal both vision and prophet? Okay. Right before Jesus is crucified, we're going to look at this text in detail next week. Matthew 24, Jesus gives a prediction about what's going to happen in the near future with him, how he's going to be on trial, his crucifixion, and ultimately culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem. And he says, at that time, right before the crucifixion, he says, be sure, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will not pass away. Therefore, the word that you heard is sure. He seals the prophecy of Daniel, both, both vision that Daniel has received and the prophet of Daniel, the prophecy that he gives. They are sealed up in the words of Jesus right before his crucifixion. And thus, in the full 70 weeks, you have an end to transgression, an end to sin, dealing with atonement, the everlasting righteousness established, Jesus is sealing up of the prophecy of Daniel and the anointed one being anointed at the baptism of Jesus, all these things taking place in the 70 weeks. And then there is one last piece in the text to deal with, which is what happens after the 62 weeks. So the text says, after the 62 weeks, the first place it says this is in verse 26, after the 62 weeks, anointed one will be cut off. So this is Jesus after the 69th week, and he will have nothing. And then it says something interesting. It says, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So sometime after the 69th week, the people of the prince to come is going to destroy the city and destroy the sanctuary. Put a pause in that. Go to verse 27. And and this is at the end of the sentence. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Next sentence. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Both of these statements dealing with the same event. So after the 69th week, sometime in the future, what's going to happen? The people of the city, the city is going to be destroyed and the sanctuary is going to be defiled and demolished. Jesus, in his prophecy in Matthew 24, seals up this vision as well and says that all of these things refer to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, which is a well-documented event where the Romans go and sack the city, destroy the second temple, and essentially put an end to the Jewish religious worship system, thus putting an end to transgression. I mentioned at the beginning the end to sin and the end of transgression are two different things. Now let's look once more at that. To finish the transgression and to put an end to sin. That's what verse 24 says. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin. Jesus, in his death, puts an end to sin. He, de- he deals with the power of sin. He puts an end to it. Okay, but why, do, why does Daniel say finish the transgression? 
Remember the Jewish people when they're going to crucify Jesus? They say, his blood be on us and on our children. They reject the Messiah who's been sent to them. They, cru- they yell, crucify him. They get him crucified. And then what is to happen? Well, the transgression is to be finished or completed or sealed up on the Jewish people. And how do the Jewish people face the final desolation or destruction of the wrath which they have heaped upon themselves without the destruction of the temple, their aberrant religious worship system, and without the destruction of Jerusalem, both confirming the wrath of God poured out on the Jewish people for the breaking of the covenant. Now Daniel, remember, is praying about the Jewish people's disobedience towards the covenant, their breaking of the covenant. That's what Daniel's whole prayer is about. And God essentially says, all of these things are going to be dealt with, and this is going to deal with the transgression that all of the Jewish people have essentially heaped up for themselves up until this point. The destruction of the temple in 70 AD is the final culmination of that judgment of God on the people who most closely rejected him. So that all being said, the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel is kind of laid out in this schema. Now, if you have a study Bible, uh, you might have other schemas that try to make sense of these dates and, and times. I've only chosen one, the one that I think makes the most sense. And again, the governing principle for this is what has to happen within the 70 weeks? What is the culmination of the history of the prophecy in Daniel? And for me, the culmination of the New Testament, the, really the whole message of the Bible, happens at the cross. The cross deals with the things which are here mentioned. And thus, the 70 weeks, which puts an end to sin, I think has to be understood as being the cross. There's no other one who can atone for iniquity besides Christ. So this is the cross and where he atones for iniquity. There's no one else who can establish everlasting righteousness. Thus, Christ, who through his death and substitutionary atonement gives us his everlasting righteousness as an offer and takes on our unrighteousness upon himself, he seals up the vision and prophet, which he does as the ultimate and final prophet who, dist- who prophesies to the Jewish people to repent and believe. And he is the one who is anointed. And Mark's gospel starts out with this. Mark chapter 1, John, set, John baptizes Jesus. And the very first thing that, set, that happens when Jesus bumps into a demon is they say, who are you the most holy? Who are you the most anointed? And now many people, there's a common objection today. Jewish rabbis will come to Christians and they will say, Everyone here, all these Christians think Daniel chapter 9 is talking about Jesus, talking about the Messiah, but no one in church history wrote about Daniel chapter 9 talking about the Messiah. There's no commentators who come, and that's quite true. If you were to dig up all the commentators in early church history, no one's talking about Daniel chapter 9 as a proof text. But if you were to read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then you read John's Revelation, the the last testament of John, you would see that all of them not only include what's called the Olivet Discourse in their prophecies, but also John has this lengthy revelation basically summarizing and drawing imagery from Daniel chapter 9, applying it to Jesus and what he accomplishes, and culminating it in his salvific reign over all creation. So I would argue the church doesn't have commentators on it because they had gospel writers on that very subject who are dealing with the prophecy, appropriating the language from the prophecy. And to that end, next week, we'll spend a lot of time in Matthew 24 dealing with how all of these things are interpreted by Christ himself in his last discourse before his crucifixion. Now with that word, this is the answer from God for the prayer of Daniel, and understand that there's a lot there, but let me just close this in a word of prayer, and then we can move together into our time of discussion. Father, your word is sure, and Lord, even if there's much here that is difficult, and much that admittedly is hard to understand, we know that whatever is seemingly strange or Uh, incongruent 
is merely our short-sightedness and our misunderstanding and not any inconsistency in your word. We confess that we are finite and we try to apply our minds to your uh, beautiful text and we often find ourselves falling short and feeling uh, wandering astray. Lord, we ask that you would just give grace to us as we try to understand and apply our minds to your word, uh, that you would be uh, gracious to us and you would bless our efforts to give us understanding and ultimately, Lord, that you would give us reverence for your name, reverence for your word, which predicts surely things which have come to pass by your holy decree. We thank you for that assurance and we submit this all to your name. Amen.